think you said you said in an interview once, really, you are just making it all up, um, and the culture Sadly, only exists yes, in the um, <laughs> in the in in the books that uh, that you've uh, that you've written about it so far. I wonder if you could if you could say a bit more about what you're um, about what you're adding to this universe in surface detail. Uh, well, I think it goes back to what I used earlier, but uh, it's contextualisation. Um, Going back to the first of the culture series, Considering Flavors, it was very much an action-adventure story mm -hmm. and, um, and deliberately told from the, the opposite point of view of the culture, from somebody who actually hates the culture and is, is fighting in a war against it. Um, uh, and because, of, in a sense, Considering Flavors' uh, sort of design brief, um, believe it or not, was out Star Wars, Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I thought my budget's even bigger because mine's infinite. <laughs> I just use words instead. Yeah, um, and it, it, it kind of altered and it changed. But I did. It was an opportunity to use all the sort of ludicrous um, uh, and I thought kind of unplaceable action sequences that I'd come up with over the years. And I thought, well, it's quite amusing, but you're never going to find a home for this in a proper novel. You know, even a proper science fiction novel. It's just too outlandish. Uh, so things like, you know, the gigantic ship hitting the tabular iceberg and the f fist fight underneath the hovercraft skirts and all that. But, nah, you know. Um, <laughs> but I thought, well, why not just try to put them all together and turn them into a novel? So it was very much of an introduction and a very sort of kinetic introduction to the culture. Uh, and the, the later books have gradually shifted to um, a slightly more sort of thoughtful turn in a way. You still have to have the, you know, action, danger, excitement stuff there as well. But... Mm. Um, the, having it in a sense of dealt with what the culture is actually like in, internally, um, I thought it was necessary uh, to make clear that it's not the only civilization going. There's lots of other civilizations out there that, you know, it's part of a galactic community. And that's been sort of referred to in the past, you know, um, but uh, I just thought it made the whole sort of picture a bit more sort of cohesive and, um, in a sense, more believable. The fact that it's not just mm. this one. I, thing, yeah. I, think, I think we, your readers, use the words the culture in, in two different senses, because the culture both means the kind of the sum total of everything that's all in the novels so yeah. far, but, but also the culture means something very specific within those novels. And just as you say, there's, there's lots in the universe that's not, that's not the culture itself. And, it, and it's interesting in, in surface detail to, um, uh, to see through the eyes, uh, to see the culture through the eyes of different characters that don't consider themselves to be, to be, to be a part of it. Oh, yeah, I think that's, again, that was the original idea in Consider Phlebas, but you've got as character who was antagonistic towards the culture, the kinds of looking at it from outside, uh, it uh, you know, at least potentially gives you a, you know, a more, well, I was going to say a more sort of um, objective view, but obviously someone who hates it as much as Horta does mm. and, uh, and Consider Phlebas is, is highly objective. But um, if, in a sense, that was because... Uh, the culture, in a sense, was a very sort of mature technology for me at the time. By the time I came to write Consider Flavors, I've been thinking about it for a good 10, 12 years beforehand. Uh, so I was kind of a very au fait with the culture as this idea. So um, I'd almost sort of got bored with it, in a sense. So I thought it'd be much more interesting for me to, to write from the point of view of someone who you know, really does hate the culture, can't stand the culture. <laughs> you know. uh, and, it, and it was, you know, I had, I had great fun with it. You know. I, I did confuse some very, I can only imagine, rather thick people who thought, wait a minute, they said what characters on the wrong side, or, you know, <laughs> what? And he dies at the end. You know, oh, sorry, but that was <laughs> This isn't saying very much. Most, most of my characters die at the end of most of my novels, to be honest. <laughs> I occasionally get asked, Would you like to, which, which of your characters would you like to be? You think, None of them, thank you. you know. <laughs> they have a very high mortality rate. It I've is a dangerous business being one of your own. What is, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. Um, but I, think, actually, I didn't know that, actually, that it, you know, it pre-existed for such a long time, but I think that, that makes such a, such a lot of sense, because I think your... Um, I think what, what science fiction writers call world building um, feels very natural. I think sometimes with with with, with science um, with with other science fiction writers that I've you feel that there is you know so much effort is being expended in, in in explaining how the world works or what this technology is or what this fantastic element is. Whereas uh, with yours, it's like you know this is this is the this is the world in the universe that you know that the characters are in. Deal with it. Um, so I think your um, if I say that you know that your your novels are are harder work to read than some of science fiction's novelists, that coming from someone who works in an academic English literature department, that is that is, is it is nothing but praise. You Excellent. know, I think <laughs> I think that's that's a measure of the quality of the writing for the. Uh, for, Splendid. For the, for the that was always my intention. I, I have to say, that's what the big words are all about. You know. <laughs> 
Um, so I'm uh, thinking about the sort of the um, you know the, the the sort of you know the fantastic technology, the stuff that doesn't exist um, in in our world yet, although we we would we would we would quite like it to. Um, something that seems to me you're you're very interested in in your work is the way in which technology affects social relationships. You know how how we deal with each other. I mean I think this is the last 20 or 30 years has been a very interesting time to be a to be a writer and a reader because we're seeing technology changing our own relationships in a way that you know that you know that you could say hasn't happened to a degree since you know the, the, the printing press was oh. was invented um i mean is that something do you, do you do you think technology does affect the way that that people behave to each other i think it does yeah i mean uh, inevitably so but i mean at the same time i think there's still a sort of uh, a kind of almost animalistic you know mammalian sort of bedrock that's not the best of that's a bit of a mixed metaphor but um there's a, a something very basic in ourselves that i think we're now sort of starting to recognize in things like the uh, the higher apes and so on and i can remember within my lifetime in a sense if you like academics sort of lifetime since i was you know at university and talking to people who, who are studying such things um i mean i even talked i remember talking to ken mcleod about this who was kind of like friends from sort of way back from high school and the attitude really did seem to be that animals were just basically machines, no matter what the animal was. It was, it was a complete them and us. You know, obviously, we still recognise you know, we had evolved from similar uh, ancestors, but uh, you know, uh, chimps, bonobos, gorillas, all the rest, and never mind, you know, um, cetaceans, whatever, dolphins, and so on. Um, they, was, they were just animals, and they were there to be uh, experimented upon and uh, anything, and you must never anthropomorphize, uh, and you must never, you know, sort of say, well, that looks like the animal's caring. No, it's not it's simply producing um, uh, behavior which makes you think that it's caring, but it's not really caring. And I think that has gradually changed, and we've now recognized that um, animals, certainly uh, the, again, the, the higher apes, um, do show signs of having a, a kind of morality and certainly a kind of culture of a small sea as well. And you see deceit and you see. Uh, the recognition of unfairness. You see the sense of that the, these animals have a sense of justice. Um, and they will do this, a very sort of kind of what we think is a very human thing, of you know, cutting off the nose to spite the face. Sort of. um, I mean, but there was one experiment where uh, you get two monkeys and you give one uh, a banana and the other one, you sort of take the banana away. And then the next time you offer them both a banana and the one that didn't get it the first time, you say, no, they want it. You know? <laughs> now, if that was simply, you know, this... Um, B.F. Skinner uh, style you know, collection of um, uh, behavioristic cells and uh, you're offering this animal a reward you know, for, for no outlay or whatever so of course it's going to take it but it's not because it's got a sense of justice it's got a, you know, idea of what is fair and what, what's right and wrong so, so this is a long roundabout way to come back to saying that although technology affects our, uh, the way we react to other people and to, to society or whatever and affects society itself there is nevertheless uh, uh, and this is a large part of what the the idea behind the culture is so there is still a kind of irreducible minimum of uh, humanity, if you like. And one of the reasons that the, you come, I've chosen to come back, well, to make the culture's lifetime so long in the books. I mean, it's about nine thousand years. That's twice the length uh, time since uh, you know the, the first pyramids, since the, the ancient Egyptians uh, to now. Uh, it's, it's had time to settle down. And when you first get the opportunity to do things look like, you know, as kind of hinted at in those bits there about transferring your consciousness into, oh, I don't know, a bush-like being or into a lovely dolphin or something, you know, yeah. um, then you, you, society, people will go through a stage of doing exactly that. What I'm imagining is quite, you know, for me, it's a very conservative, you know, sort of thing to be doing. Again, small C. <laughs> 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 Uh, I don't think uh, anyone who's read your books is in much danger yeah. of hearing <laughs> a large seat there. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, for me, I, it is, in a sense, a conservative thing to, to assume that, that um, humans kind of need to be human in a way. And it's all very well and good to experiment with other sort of forms of, of being, if you like. But uh, the, the, the idea of embodiment and that, that it matters profoundly and intrinsically to to an intelligence, to, to an intelligent creature, uh, to be embodied within something that is roughly appropriate um, is vitally important. And that's why the, the minds, the very high level AIs that, um, that inhabit the culture and are kind of its ultimate, you know, sort of, uh, ultimate powers, and to some extent play the, the part of Greek gods in, yes. a, in a way. Um, certainly as bitchy, that's for sure. Uh, the, the, the minds have to be embodied uh, almost always in, in, in starships because embodiment matters and mobility matters and so on. Not, not, not always, and you get, ones, you get minds that are 
uh, usually having been ships, become the, the hubs of orbitals, because it's just a huge amount to look after, and it's a gigantic fish tank, marvellous fun. Anyway, um, but that, that embodiment thing matters, and although the culture humans have a you know, huge amount of um, improvements and, and so on, nevertheless, the vast majority, I'm, I'm misassuming, especially after all this amount of time, will be recognisably human. I mean, obviously, this is you know, a very, very large you know, question being begged here about um, if there are any aliens, will they look remotely like us? Uh, I'm kind of assuming that not only are there one lot, there's about a, half, well, a dozen of them, you know, and that 10,000 years ago they all got together and said, okay, we'll make it so we can all breed together. And so they form this mongrel species, um, and uh, that, that's what the culture, uh, what, what it is. But yes, yeah, so that whole embodiment thing matters. And so the technology, in a sense, although it means a lot, and it, can, it does profoundly affect you, especially at first. Um, it kind of only makes it more fun to still be yourself, if you know what I mean. You come back to being human, um, and the technology you get is uh, that really makes a difference. Or the, the um, I suppose it's technology, yeah, it's stuff like the uh, not having to age so quickly. So people in the culture live, you know, three or four hundred years, and potentially, if they really want to, can live longer. I imagine they would eventually want to die, but um, certainly human form. Um, and uh, things like you'll be able to sense radio signals and see into the infrared and ultraviolet. Uh, the minutes-long orgasms, um, the, and, and I've sort of beefed up heart-long system to cope with the minute-long orgasms, um, <laughs> and the drug glands as well, you know, and, and, this is, and also the ability to change sex, that is the kind of stuff, that's the most important technology, a set of technologies that the culture has, in a way, in a sense, beyond the starships and, you know, the orbitals and all that stuff, uh, it's the stuff that's built into the humans and the culture themselves, so they're much more sort of self-sufficient. Um, you know, be able to just sort of think, I think I want to get stoned now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, great <laughs> idea, you know. I was always amazed no one else thought of that, you know. I couldn't yeah. believe it. I was, I'd assume some other bugger must have thought of that. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think in a sense all that sort of, you know, technology sort of matters. Yeah. The same way, I mean, so, sorry, go on. No, go I was going to say, I think, no, I think that's great. I think that that's um, your, I mean, your, I mean, the culture is a, you know is, is a sort of is a sort of space opera, but it's but it's never just about the tech. I think your characters live very much in their um, in the, in their in, the, in their bodies. Um, and uh, but also, you imagine what would a consciousness be like if the body is not mammalian, but it's but it's insectoid or um, or it's you know or, or it's octopus or indeed you know what would the consciousness of a of a machine be like? Mm. Uh, I mean, I think. Um, I think one of the characters says, I don't think he uses ex exactly kind of, you know, Bacon's words, but more or less that knowledge is power oh. in this universe and, the, and that the minds are the most powerful beings because they have the, the greatest processing power. Uh -huh. um, but I think coming back to the chimpanzees and their, and their sense of justice, that um, there's a sense in the culture that knowledge is power, but something that you write about, um, I think, you know, um, you, know, um, you know, frequently and interestingly in in the novels that appear without your middle initial uh, on the cover as well, is imbalances of power. Mm. Um, and I think that's certainly that, that's something that's going on in, 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 in surface detail as well too, that I think you know, that this is a, uh, you know, a, a very ethically engaged kind of, 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 of science fiction because of the, uh, the, the nature and the status of the, of the villain. Yeah, Vepers, uh, uh -huh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I sort of tried to make sort of, I don't think I made him as charming as he was meant to be in a way. I, I sort of wanted to be somehow, you know, absolutely odious, a horrendous person, but somehow, you know, I wanted to give him the, give the idea that he was in some way charming. That's partly how he got to the position he was in. A lot of it was just, um, you know, uh, daddy's money kind of thing, but part of it was his personal charm. I don't know if that really came across, you know, because everyone just thinks he's a stage villain, you know, sort of, you know, no, behind you! <laughs> you <know. laughs> No, I, th I think he does. It's, it's the... Um, it's so I wasn't fishing for compliments. Sorry. No, that's all right. Well, that's what I'm here for. Well, it's um, uh, the, the notion of, 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 you know, of, of negative capability that, oh. you know, that, that, that authors should, should sympathise, you know, should inhabit I Iago as, mu as much as Imogen. Oh. And I think, um, uh, I think that, that uh, in, you know, pr previous novels do have um, sort of different, different focalisers, that the, the, the action follows different characters at different... At different stages of the of the text, and I think surface detail is the most complex one for mm. thinking. All right, whose brain am I in? Now? Where the hell am I now? And, and, and something that you've uh, you used uh, sort of uh, pronouns for this too that, you, that that we have sex, sections of prose that's using he or she, and the reader is kept on their toes about which he or she this is. But I think even even your villain, uh, you can sort of inhabit their mind because there are passages where it's it's Vepers is. Um, Thought processes that we're uh, that we're that, that we're that we're following. Um, I don't know, but I thought he was charming. Uh, there must be other people in the room who've read this. What do you think? 
Try to be charming. That'll do, actually. I'll settle for that. Yeah. Try to be charming is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Um, can I ask you uh, about the heroine? Uh, to if um, I've never taken care of it. Oh, well, sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, you'll have to tell me. Well, my first question about the heroine is: is how should I pronounce her name? Ledege. Ledege. Yeah. <laughs> because um, I, I must say, I was I was pleased when I started reading this one. I realised this this was going to be another um, uh, you know you know Ian M. Banks heroine as the as the central character. Although there's a there's an awful lot going on. I think. I mean, if I'm, I'm, I hesitate yeah, before yeah. even referring referring to her as a as a heroine, because yeah. I think this, this perhaps is, is connected with the is issues of power in your novels, because in less evolved societies than the culture, such as um, uh, Ledege's home world mm. and the world that we live in now, perhaps uh, women have, an, uh, you know, have, have less, uh, a lesser share of the power than would be fair, and, and men have a larger share. Of the, Absolutely, the yeah. Primitive, uh, yeah. The primitive, mm. more primitive cultures that you, uh, societies that you, that you write about tend to be patriarchal ones, and, uh, and certainly your heroine gets a hard time of it in the world where she grows up. She does kind of, yeah, getting killed at the end of the first chapter. Is, you know, just, <laughs> I was, I was trying it, not you know? to give that away. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite disappointed when she went. I thought I was starting to like her, but, you know, but knowing the fatality rate for your characters... Um, sorry. Um, um, yeah, I, mean, I think she could, like, when, you, know, you could fairly call her the central character. She's you know, the most um, uh, characters there most of the time throughout the novel. And in a sense, it is largely about her in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it is about, it's about power, and again, it's about justice. I mean, as soon as you have an inequality of power um, uh, or a sort of nexus of power, then that almost automatically entails injustice. It's almost bound to happen. Um, I mean, part of the idea behind the culture is that um, it's largely got over the need for um, the kind of... Uh, I suppose competition, if you like. I mean, yeah. once you have, once you're a properly space-filling species, and you have access, you know, one assumes to, you know, almost infinite, some, infinite amounts of of, uh, of matter and of energy, then uh, you don't have the the whole problem of you know the shortage of resources. So that's why the culture, you know, has no money, and you know, famously, just uh, well, it's famous to it. You know, it's money is a sign of poverty. Uh, you know, checkbooks are a ration book. If there's enough of everything to go around, you wouldn't need to ration it out via uh, you know, means of exchange. Um, so in the in that sense, and again, because people have this ability to um, uh, be very, very much sort of um, self-sufficient within the culture, I mean, no one more so, no things more so than the AIs, but uh, and they really only stick around to uh, because again, it's the fish tank thing. Um, you know, they, they're they're so bloody marvelous and perfect. You know, there's nothing, there's no real challenges left for an AI for for a culture of mind, except looking after these fractious little buggers that, at some, you know, <laughs> thousands of years, you know, in, in the past, kind of gave birth to, or um, you know, created uh, your own sort of forebears. So, um, yeah, I think the the, the there's a, obviously there's enormous power within the culture, and, it, and to some extent it is. It's more localised in the, the minds than, uh, than the humans, but nevertheless, the culture is you know, a proper, fully functioning democracy at the same time. Uh, and I was actually, even, even today, I was thinking, when it comes to a proper vote, do the minds just get one vote? Because that seems somehow unfair. I thought, no, I probably do, you know, because again, they are so self sufficient. <laughs> you know. um, because there's a bit at the end of Considered Freelance when it talks about the number of uh, beings killed. It's sometimes 851 billion or something, something suitably you know, uh, enormous uh, for an enormous war and a large war in the, the galaxy. Uh, it says something about reckoned on a logarithmic sentience scale. And I remember writing that about you know, 20 odd years ago, <laughs> thinking, I think I know what that means. Oh, I'll just go with it. You know, you know, you know. Um, it's only later that I thought, God, it sounds like racist. It's about intelligence or, or something. I don't know. But you know, there, was, there was an implication that some creatures mattered more than others. Yeah. Um, it was definitely in there, and that minds you know, um, somehow matter more than humans. But, uh, anyway, I've, I've just well, tried to Maybe that's why you write so often about, um, about figures, um, also like, like the emperor in the player of games as well, that, that, um, or, or the villain here, that don't like the culture, because, because mm. that's actually where the most interesting stories might be, might be found. Um, oh, it is, absolutely, yeah. It's, always, it's the outskirts of the culture that interesting stuff tends to happen, and it's people who love power, and, and more to the point, love the exercise of power, mm. uh, that tend to hate it the most, because... There isn't much. There's very, almost no, or very, very little individual power uh, for individuals, for individual humans yes. in the culture. And even the minds are very sort of constrained in, in a sense of what they can do. There's all these sort of rules and rules and regulations. It's all really, it's etiquette. Mm. There are, the culture has no proper laws. 
you know, for the, the there's ways of behaving. There's a whole sort of code of where you ought to behave. It's all very polite and nice and all the rest of it. It's, it's just etiquette. <laughs> and the minds really, and technically, they can do anything they damn well please. And, uh, and you know, but the the the, um, the minds certainly in, um, in in this novel, but elsewhere too, that are most visible in the novels are the are the most eccentric and odd yeah, and plain I, rude. Oh uh, hell yeah, the, yeah, um, dick dick rude. Um, uh, well, yeah, again, this because they're more exciting. The more you know, the, the, it's good to have eccentric. You know. I mean, there's one of the special, one of the ship names I've never, I don't think I've used it yet, is Irrational Fear of an, an Infinitely Powerful but Thoroughly Eccentric st Spaceship Stationed Immediately Above Your Planet. Comma. No wonder they have one-word avatars. Yeah. Them, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there's always sort of etiquette about, about how you behave and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but individual power is, is almost non-existent for a human. And certainly the kind of the power that... Um, you know, a president or, uh, or any, I suppose, any politician, any ambitious politician wishes to, to exercise and become part of and eventually have access to is uh, difficult to come by. My idea, and also, say, uh, a chief executive officer of, you know, a big bank or someone chief of a hedge fund or something like that, I don't know what you do in culture. Well, actually, I do know what you do in culture. I think people like that end up effectively self-medicating with VR. They go into... Um, <laughs> uh, Basically, it's virtual reality games uh, mm. that are uh, almost completely indistinguishable from real life. They're just done at such a, a, a deep uh, sort of level. And um, this, again, fabulous amounts of processing power. So you really can't tell you're in a, a, a virtual environment. Uh, and that is where you can be as cruel and as horrible and disgusting and terrible and, and vengeful and just plain nasty yes. uh, as you like. Um, but it's not real. Yes. And that's, that's enough for the culture that'll do. As long as the thing, obviously, you can't have real, um, the, 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 the people appear to be suffering can't be real, because the whole point is to prevent suffering, even if it's virtual beings, it doesn't matter. It's all about um, the prevention and alleviation of suffering. That is what the culture is really about. And yet, in this novel, uh, you write about a virtual realm, uh, or a set of virtual realms, which exists so that consciousnesses can experience suffering um, after death. Um, you know, for, the, for those of you that that haven't, haven't read the novel yet. Um, That's not giving too much away. It's uh, about it's the hell. Not, I, I mean, think it says that, that, like, is that all right, isn't it? That? I think, yeah, yeah. Um, somewhere in here. Well, uh, start in Realm the Real, uh, blah, 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 blah. No, something about it, it won't end, ah, here we go. It will not end until the culture has gone to war with death itself. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so the hells are kind of, you know, in there, you know, from the start. Sort of right. um, I wondered if, I mean, this may not be um, something that, you, you know, that you, that you would choose yourself, but it did strike me that, that some of your readers um, might take uh, this novel to be a, a satire about Christianity. Oh, that's worth a shot, you know. Why not? I have been accused of that. put that one out there, perhaps. Perfectly all right, yeah. Um, yeah, I was once asked uh, about, I think it was the Wasp Factory. Yeah, what was the Wasp Factory? And someone said, is this just a dig at religion? I said, if that means exhuming it, oh, oh yes, please. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I'm an evangelical atheist, me. Oh, yeah, he always have been. Well, not always, you know. I think I went through a very religious phase, uh, around right about 11 and a half, 12, around right yeah. about then. Yeah, but that was it, you know. My mum, though, still has, actually, she's in a home now. She probably, oh, I might still be in the house. I could probably find it. I didn't say it aloud, did I? No, good. Um, <laughs> my mum has a, 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 a poem that I wrote when I was about 12, uh, basically praising God and saying how brilliant God was yeah. and how much I thought he was a smashing person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... Never really written anything in my life I regretted more. But there you go, I was young, I was stupid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, when the... Uh... Collected juvenilia of, of Ian Banks is, is published. Uh, if I don't get it first and burn it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> note, note to self. Don't usually believe in burning <laughs> literature of any sort. You know, but, well, well really I, think, for that. I think it's, I mean, the way it's discussed in the, in, in the novel is, is, um, is again, it's, it's about power. Uh, that yeah. if, um, you know, that one of the, one of the characters that's in favour of, um, of keeping these, these virtual hells going and says, well, look, you know, we need, um, Everybody needs the, the, the threat of eternal suffering in the afterlife. Otherwise, what's the incentive that we should behave nicely to oh. each other in, 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 in life? And, of course, the, uh, as you see, you know, the, the, the culture has a rather more evolved set of answers to that, to that same question. Yeah, I, I do find... I mean, you do hear... Uh, I suppose the context I've had it in mostly. I don't want to single Christians out particularly, but uh, certainly the context I've had that sort of uh, argument used. Um, it, it's Christians that I've heard saying that. I'm, 
suspect, you know, that uh, fundamentalist uh, Islamists and, you know, hardline uh, sort of orthodox Jews feel the same way. But it's that idea that you've got to believe in God, otherwise you just be a beast, you behave like a beast. So, mm. excuse Choose the fuck out of me, you know. <laughs> atheist, you know, I try to be a nice person and, you know, yeah. so generous and kind and all the rest of it and gentleman and so on. I don't believe any of this bollocks, quite frankly. So yeah. how do you account for me? You know, I just have to take my, maybe you just have to take my word. Maybe you think I'm you know, some sort of ghastly, horrible person and go out and deliberately target small children to run them over in the tank, you know, as soon as I t you turn my back, you turn your, their back on me. Um, but yeah, that idea that it does seem quite prevalent. And just, as I say, I've experienced it most in a Christian context. So um, if I didn't believe in God, I'd be a horrible person. I'd do these horrible things. Well, that is your fucking problem, pal. You know, yeah. so don't come to me with it. But it's very bleak and... You know, sort of uh, a very insecure sort of attitude as well. You know, uh, if, if it's true, then it means they are monsters, and I say they are self-medicating by, by religion in a way. Except it doesn't really work that way, does it? Because if you ask people why do you believe, you know, in any given religion, they almost never say, well, because I was brought to believe that. Mm. My mum and dad told me. You know, my teachers told me. No one, almost no one ever actually admits this. You know, it's usually, well, I read the book, or you know. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It is, I think, you know, it is a, it is a very bleak, um, bleak, uh, bleak picture, uh, and I think, um, and, uh, and, you know, and yet for all that, I mean, I think, uh, I think some of the most gruesome scenes that you've, that you've ever written um, are... Yeah, I got carried novel, away at some yeah. point, so I must have been right, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yet at the same time, too, um, your characters, I think, you know, know how, to, know how to have a lot of fun. I think as well. well back to the drug lands here, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think just the, you know the appetite for um, you know for, for, for you know for, for, for drugs and for sex and for and for food um, as well too. It's general uh, fun. Lava rafting. Which is what I was glad they invented. Yes, it yeah. makes me doubt how much of a Scottish writer <laughs> you actually are. If that's, but, um, <laughs> and also too for um, for stories um, and for games too. I mean, oh. your characters tell stories. To it, you know, um, uh, to each other, the, the, you know, the, you know, illustrative stories, particularly, and and, um, and 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 play games too. I think uh, I suppose that's an observation rather than rather, rather yeah. Than, I think that's well, a very germane one. I mean, I've always been fascinated by games. I've never been a particularly good game player, mind you. You know, my, my chess is quite ropey these days, and. Um, I was never very good even at games I invented, you know. I was <laughs> very annoying, you know, friends would be better. Uh, at one point I thought it was a, you know, Risk, you know, as a board game, you know, a game of world domination. At one point I thought it was a Risk genius <laughs> because I had one, I think it was either 13 out of 15 games or 11 out of 13 uh, against all my pals. Uh, now the reason for this really was, I, I, see, I thought I was a genius. What it was was I was only one of my pals who had a car so when we all went out to the pub, I was, I'd have maybe a pint and then stop, right? <laughs> and they went all go, hua, hua, pissed out their brains but by the time I drove them home. So, and we'd sit around and I'd go, if I say I give a risk, yes, I give a risk. <laughs> and I was going, oh, what's he doing here? <laughs> okay. Uh, so I was the only sober one. And that's why I thought I was really good at it. They were always nist as putes, quite frankly. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> So that, that, uh, that kind of paid to that. And I invented what I thought of as a great idea of called Super Risk, which oh, was very involved. My dad worked for the Admiralty, and he was in charge of the charts on the ship that um, he was uh, the first officer, the mate on. So he brought his lovely big, great big charts back. And used to, when I was very young, I used to draw like war scenes on them, you know, so the Harry F, the Luftwaffe and stuff, and um, battles and tanks and stuff. And I got a bit older, I used to draw like, games, you know, or just like, fan fantasy landscapes on them or whatever. And they were great, you know, marvellous good big bits of paper for drawing games on. So I invented Super Risk, uh, which was much more complicated than Ordinary Risk. It had resources. You had to have like, certain resources. You had to have like, uh, access to an iron um, uh, uh, sort of source before you could have tanks and stuff like that. And you only have some, as many soldiers as you had uh, grain supplies. And uh, it changed every time because uh, it's like a big, one single big island, uh, but it had some templates cut out for, to make, make it look like water. So that um, it meant that everyone always had the same number of countries, right? So it was like you had 18 countries and you had five people playing. And you each get three, and three of the ones that you didn't have would be turned into uh, lakes, you know, or inland seas or whatever. So it, meant it was fairer in that sense, but also technically. 
technically, uh, you might never play the same board twice. I really liked that idea. Um, I thought it done really well. And, uh, I even had pieces that were there, but not invisible, not on the board. On the board, uh, the commando pieces, you know. And you could go nuclear and everything. It was really. And then I, and then I thought it was quite clever. It was so complicated. I never fully understood it myself. <laughs> and I certainly never persuaded any of my friends to, to come and sort of play test play it with me, you know. Because this one look, all, well, we're kind of getting to drugs at times. So just sort of go. <laughs> Fuck that, thanks. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're right, fuck that. You know. um, and then I discovered Civilization by Mr. Sid Meier and oh, discovered yes. it had been done better. Yeah. <laughs> Very annoying. <laughs> yes, I think for, for people of exactly my age, I think Civilization is the reason why PhDs normally took four years to write <laughs> rather than the three that they're supposed to. Um, but I think I, I have students who tell me that, um, that computer games um, are sort of are, are like cinema in the sense that, that one time, you know, the, the, you know once upon a time, films were never seen as, as something of being worthy of attention or being serious mm. art forms. But now, of course, you know, cinema is. And, you know, one day, computer games, I think, as a, as a narrative form, will be, will be looked at in the same way as, as, as novels and films. Um, and actually, I, 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 I can't think of any writer that, that, that sort of you know, get, gets it, just gets it better or right on the, on the spot than you do the role that the game plays in the, in the player of games or, oh, right, um, yeah. or, or complicity um, as well, too. I think that when... Um, uh, you know, when people in my line of work are looking for, um, you know, writers that, that that understand computer games and get how they work and and and, and make it a make it a part of their, um, you know, words on the page mm. narrative universe. I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I think that's something that you do very well. Well, I think it's just uh, I, I just love games. I just love the. I think it's the, in a book, uh, especially a novel. You know, um, well, yeah, uh, not so much a story, but a short story, but a, a novel and a you know, proper good going game. They are very similar. You start, you have central characters, you have a, you have, it's linear, that's the other thing. You can go in all sorts of different potential directions, but it yes. is linear, you know. Yeah. Um, and it has you know, the, the best have some sort of resolution, you know. Uh, games tend to have closure, you know. I never like this idea about resisting closure. I hear people say, I, resist, I was resisting closure. I think, no, you aren't. You just couldn't think of a good ending for your fucking novel. <laughs> <didn't you?"> <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> I may be doing a disservice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think the, the, there's a lot of uh, similarity between uh, books and, and games. And certainly, I've, and I've been, you know, the stories have turned into games. I mean, there was that thing, uh, Cluedo became Clue or something, didn't it? It didn't become a movie. It became a film, uh, yes. And um, what was it called? Cold It, uh, from way, way, way back. Uh, uh, TV series, became, it became a game, you know, so there's a sort of constant cross-reference. And obviously, lots and lots of computer games have become usually very, very bad films. <laughs> We're still <laughs> waiting for the first good one, I think, aren't we? <laughs> I'm afraid so, yeah. But absolutely, to your point, yeah, I think games are certainly getting to the stage where they ought to be taken extremely seriously indeed. I mean, apart from anything else, um, and one thing that's going to get people's attention is the sheer amount of money that a game can make. Mm. Games can be bigger than the biggest film, practically, you know, so that, that makes a difference. And not just because of that, but they, they are attracting, you know, very good minds. You've got people who are, uh, you know, could easily, you know, be, if they wanted to be, could be perfectly good, you know, prose writers, could write novels, whatever, and some of them do. Um, but they spend their, uh, their creative lives working on, on games. Uh, it wouldn't be for me, to be honest, because uh, I've kind of got spoiled over the years by, by, you know, basically being God, you know, because you do have the power of life or death on your character. <laughs> Especially death, as I've, I've uh, explained. Um, so I don't think it'd be for me. I'm not really. I'm not a team player. It's the only child thing surfacing, quite frankly. You know. <laughs> but um, but I, I admire people who can work in that uh, kind of context. And certainly, I see there's some very, very good, very intelligent, creative minds working in, in the game environment. Who otherwise, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago would have gone, you know, straight. Be attracted most by films. Mm. Uh, and maybe you know, 50 years ago would have been most attracted by by novels. You know, or maybe 100 years ago, whenever mm. you know the the the, uh, the cutting edge time of novels was. You know. Perhaps Jane Austen times, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, Dickens, I suppose, maybe. Sure. maybe no, but no, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. Well, um, you've been very indulgent. Everyone has been very indulgent. So I'll just ask my own fi the, the final question from me, and then I'll uh, and then I'll turn to my uh, turn to my letter. Mate. Um, are you able to tell us what we might be reading from you next? Yeah, it's called Stonemouth, and it's a mainstream novel. It's coming out in April next year, um, and uh, it's about love and gangsters in the northeast oh, of Scotland. Fantastic. And it's kind of in sort of uh, Crow Road territory, I think, in terms of the overall feel of it. Uh, it's certainly a lot less challenging, shall we say, than Transition, the last mainstream one. Right. <laughs> its template was the bridge. And I was trying to sort of um, uh, bring the science fiction and the mainstream sort of back together. Well, science fiction 
stroke fantasy feel of the bridge, but trying to bring those two sort of strands back together. And I was very happy that I did it, but uh, it's quite a, quite a tough read, I think, in a lot of ways. And it is, I've, I've been maintaining that it's about 49% science fiction, the transition. But. <laughs> That's right. Maybe well, I, I may be prosecuted by the Treaty Descriptions Act for that. But, uh, okay, that's all right. Well, I think the Crowe-Rodin, I think, is probably my, my favourite of yours so far, so I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. Well, my publishers do seem to be very happy with Stonemouth, even though they're waiting to wait for it to publish it. But apparently, that's, that's the best time for serious literature. Okay. It's not that serious, but there you go. <laughs> oh, well, that's super news. Great. Thank you. Um, well, I wonder if um, we might... Uh, yes. How far? Uh, well, I'm sort of, it's what I tell them, basically. You know, they've got no idea. They're in London. What do you expect? You know? <laughs> um, no, what it is, um, once again, I have had to alter the geography of Scotland to make this story work. Playing God again. One of the, basically, yeah, I know you mentioned it. Yeah. One of the um, most fun bits before I really sort of got properly started with um, Crow Road was getting this, um, because a quarter inch map of. Uh, the west of Scotland and altered the geography so that it, it all worked and so that I could put Gallanach where I wanted it to be at the Crown Canal. Uh, and it meant, you know, sort of cutting the island of Jura in half and uh, uh, God knows what that did to the economy, but I couldn't have directed it. Um, and uh, a building, I've got complete building, putting, pretending there'd be a complete different railway line to there. And I've had to do the same thing this, this book. It kind of, it's really, I think, meant Aberdeen's shifted south. Aberdeen's still Aberdeen, very much. You know, still, still the same place. Uh, and still a big city, and got a university and stuff like that. But uh, between it and Peter Head, Peter Head, there is this town called Stonemouth, or another sort of um, estuary, you know, another river. So uh, and that's where it all takes place. And uh, it's, um, yeah, uh-huh. It, it's, yeah, uh-huh. It's kind of, it's a wee bit like where I live. I live in North Queen Street, just across the river, uh, forth from Edinburgh. And as uh, we look out onto the, the, the fourth bridge, and the, the, uh, the rail bridge, and also the, the, um, uh, the, the road bridge as well. So there's a suspension road bridge mentioned that's right at the start of the... Uh, there's a very symbolic meeting right in the middle of the bridge at the start. Um, yes, sorry. Mm. Was it intentionally a sequel to matter? No, why? Do you think it is? Uh, oh. um, <laughs> no, really? <laughs> I'm fascinated. I mean, there's not much. There's, there's no characters that are... Uh, uh, no, absolutely not, is the short answer. I didn't think it was like matter at all, really. Um, I mean, the, in a sense, it was actually more of a reaction to matter. I, I ended up doing this quite a lot. I mean, the, the reason that complicity was so horrible, you know, and just uh, full of shocking, disgusting, terrible things um, was because, uh, having written Crow Road, I thought, people might think I'm going soft. <laughs> <laughs> I better do something really horrible for the next one. Um, and, and this one, in a way, was, was slightly written as a sort of an antidote almost to matter, because um, with matter, I thought I'd, uh, I'd, I did get some definite criticism. You know, even though a lot of it was couched very politely, but there was a lot of yeah, you did spend quite a lot of time in this sort of semi-medieval, stroke Victorian sort of uh, kingdom, whatever. Not much time in the culture, eh? You know, uh -oh, you know. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd sort of um, have the 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 other sort of protagonist, um, civilization, society, whatever, more like a, a, an updated what. Well, hours plus a few decades or 100 years or whatever um, so that uh, it would get away from that, that feeling of, you know, a slight feeling almost of fantasy or going back to swords and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so in that way it was meant to be, it's kind of influenced by matter but trying quite hard to get away from it. So, uh, yeah, I don't think it was much like matter at all, but there you go. Interesting. Hmm. <laughs> Do we have any... Uh, the There's probably uh, a paper in there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, at, the, uh, at the back there. Well, that's a matter of opinion, you know. Oh, <laughs> it's an opinion that I share. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, not really. I think you just, you just kind of you get used to it, you know. I think um, uh, I, mean, I knew what I was getting into. Although, although I thought of myself as a science fiction writer before I ever wrote The Wasp Factory, 
Uh, I did have, you know, I'd written what was a wasp factory and then did no science fiction element at all. Uh, Walking on Glass, which had sort of well, more fantasy than science fiction elements, and then The Bridge, which had a bit more of each, as it were. Uh, I didn't have to go off and write a space opera after that, you know. Um, mm. I could happily have, you know. Um, I think I'd also I've kind of served my time after, you know, the, uh, the, um, the uproar that, was that the Wasp Factory was greeted with in certain qu quarters. You know, I could have served my time. You know, I could have been a respectable writer by now. Uh, I, I never <laughs> will, obviously, because, you know, I'm a serial re-offender every second year. I bring out a science fiction novel. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that pleases me. I like doing that. I like, I mean, in some ways, the thing that pleases me the most is being able to write in two different genres. It's not, I mean, don't get me wrong, science fiction is, you know, is, is my genre. I absolutely love it. Uh, I still love reading it, and uh, I absolutely adore writing within it. Uh, I get <clears throat> about, I don't know, 95% of the same buzz from writing mainstream, but it's the fact I can operate in two different genres in the first place, you know, to call mainstream a genre. Um, so it's that feeling of freedom, of not feeling that, oh, I've got oh, not another bloody book, you know, which at the rate I write, it could potentially, you know, it, it would have that problem. I feel that, you know, there's a sort of treadmill having to write the same or something similar each and every time. But at least, you know, for my, my obviously my attention span in such matters only lasts for about, you know, 23 months. And so by the time I come back today, uh, uh, the next mainstream, I've, I've forgotten about the last one. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, la, 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 la. Um, so, I, yeah, it doesn't really bother me that much. Obviously, ideally, I would like science fiction to be given more sort of recognition. Um, at the same time, there's a bit of me that uh, there's always been a sort of um, a faction within science fiction that, that said, uh, keep science fiction in the gutter where it belongs. And we, we like our outsider status. And I, I've got a sneaking, you know, sort of sympathy for that attitude as well. But, um, yeah, I'd like to, I'd just like to see it being a bit more fair and just let less prejudice, you know, just automatically assuming that because it's science fiction, it is therefore rubbish. But uh, that's, um, I'm, I'm doing what I can. I'm just writing the best I can in both genres. And, you know, that's it, really. Thank you. Uh, yes, down the front there. Yeah. If you were going to spin your work off into another medium, whether comic, TV, series, film, uh, computer game or anything, uh, I mean, do you like the idea or hate it? Or what would it be? Um, well, it's not it's nothing I can really influence that, that extent. Um, it's you're pushing on the end of a bit of a string territory if you, if you try to. So um, uh, it depends on what, what you know, uh, offers basically my agent gets, you know. So, um, I mean, in principle, I have nothing against uh, having the books filmed, you know, particularly the science fiction. I'd like to see it. Although they'd get the spaceships wrong, I just know they would get the spaceships <laughs> wrong. Um, but, you know, I could live with that. Uh, so in a way, I'd like to see that it'd be great, especially Flevis. I'd love to see consider Flevis done properly, you know, a, a big enough budget and all the... Uh, I don't really care what they, they cut out as long as they leave the big action sequences. Mm. <laughs> Bit of a sucker that way. Uh, yeah, I suppose you could. Yeah, uh -huh, yeah. We, yeah. Well, it, it's kind of set up that way, isn't it? You know, right to that thing about you know what what kept you, what took you so long. You know, you lot took your time. Um, yeah, that whole thing. Um, so yeah, in principle, yeah. But at the same time. Um, once it's made, books made into a film, you kind of lose it, you know. And as soon as you, if you say, well, even something like The Crow Road, it was done brilliantly. It was a great uh, piece of, it was a four-part um, miniseries thing they made. It was really well done. But anyone who's read the book and seen the four-part series, if, if you say the words Crow Road, the image they will get in their head will be from the TV series, not virtually guaranteed. Uh, and that's not what I put there, you know what I mean? Because uh, the images, you know, proper images that you actually see that come in through the eye uh, are more powerful, more lasting, because in a sense they are real. They're actually, there's something that was there. It was, it was on your retina, on your retina, you whatever. Sorry? Can you draw? Uh, can I draw? Not really. No, a, a little, badly. Why do you ask? What? <laughs> I could do it off Harris. You could, <laughs> can you tell what it is yet? You know. Um, well, not, not terribly well. Just that, not, can we get to five? You know? <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, and games, again, it's like I say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to take part particularly. You know, if someone wants to go off and do it, fine, but I wouldn't be able to uh, you know, be a part of the team. I don't think it's, it's in me to do that, so we'll so see. Any, any uh, film producers, uh, graphic artists, uh, computer game programmers in the, in the audience tonight? From um, Rodley Q, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to my agent, yeah. Um, okay, was there another? Uh, okay, the lady there. Overarching power. 
Um, a little of both. Uh, that sounds a bit wishy-washy, but uh, it, it tells the truth, I think. Um, I think I kind of re only realised when I was a few books into you know, the series, or whatever you want to call it, that uh, the, the culture minds were like Greek gods. Um, and I think to some extent, having realised that, any books you write subsequent to a realisation like that, you're bound to influence yourself, if you know what I mean. You know, bound to, that, that's bound to come out. Now, I, I wouldn't say that I've deliberately... Um, try to make them some. There's no sort of uh, no sort of clues or uh, sort of hidden bits and pieces that are you can decode and suddenly it will become clear. Ah, it really doesn't mean that they're like Greek gods. It's just something that a general feeling that I've got. If I was reading stuff like this, I think well, the, the characters that the the minds are closest to uh, that, that existed previously in other you know, in other creative sense would, in, in literature would be the Greek gods. Um, because they do have that, you know, Olympian sort of disdain and kind of um, uh, um, an engagement with, but a, a degree of contempt for, uh, but it's a huge interest in um, their human charges or where we want to, to put it. Uh, so, yeah, it's not something that I've, having realised it, I've then, you know, gone, you know, full scale into it and tried to, to bring out the, that, that realisation. It's just a continuing understanding and that's you know, where, what, what they represent. Uh, and the same, I think, with religion. I'm not really sort of... Uh, um, I'm well past the stage, despite being an evangelical atheist, I'm well past the stage of actually trying to persuade people, you know, through, uh, sort of, uh, through literature as such. And you can just, sort of, to some extent, just put your own ideas or feelings out there without proselytising, you know, over much. Um, uh, and also, because I could be wrong. That's the other thing. You know, I've, I've got to at least entertain the idea that uh, it could all be a cosmic joke, you know, despite the fact that um, it is manifestly clear that there is no God, certainly no Christian God, you know. Omniscient, omniscient omnipotent, and good. You know. That doesn't even make logical sense. You know, who was it? What was the physicist that said this isn't... It looked at... Um, uh, what was supposed to be a mathematical proof for a physical idea, a physics idea. He looked at it and he said, with the ultimate disdain, he said, this isn't even wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Linus Pauli, I could be wrong. Anyway, um, and it's kind of the same thing. You cannot have, it simply is absolutely impossible. It is logically impossible. The same way that even Christian theologians will agree that even God is not infinitely powerful in the sense that uh, he, she, or it can make a, a, a fruit, say, orange all over and green all over at the same time. That is a logical impossibility. I would extend that to the idea of an omniscient, omnipotent, good God. You cannot put those together with the evidence that uh, that nonsense is around us all the time. However, having said that, I have to at least acknowledge that the possibility that I might die and then wake up again, and I'll be standing in front, you know, on a cloud in front of the big pearly gates, and be this guy, a big flowing beard, you know, not the big fella himself, you know, some underling Peter or whatever it is, with the big book. Ah, <laughs> ah Mr. Banks. <laughs> Mr. Banks, the atheist. <laughs> it says here you don't like hot climates. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I think it's vanishingly unlikely. I mean, preposterous to the point that solipsism actually makes more sense, you know. <laughs> um, but you, you, you never absolutely know. So I think you have to be, you have to have that feeling of that of scientific feeling, in a sense, of doubt, of not being absolutely sure. Which is why, you know, I've long since come around to the idea that anyone who's absolutely positive that they're right is almost certainly wrong. Mm. That's a Great massive. <laughs> right. yeah, sure. As our American cousins say, your mileage may differ. <laughs> I think there was another question on this. I just want to make. I can't. Say, I want, want to make sure I'm not ignoring the, the upper gallery as well. Um, Somebody up there. Oh, hi. Hi. Very much option A there. Uh, I don't know if that would actually work to, you know, uh, the other way. Um, I've discovered that the way I, I, I write best uh, is to have a fairly definite idea of where the book is going right from the start. Uh, so the, in some ways, the most important part of the writing of the book is it's not the 
say the three months that it might take to actually you know physically type the thing out it's a, again about the same amount of time three months before that when I'm thinking it through and planning it out you don't plan it out exhaustively there's all the stuff that you know kind of um, generated in real time obviously uh, conversations and uh, all sorts of incidental stuff but the general uh, sort of movement of it the overall structure um, it kind of has to be there I have tried doing it differently uh, and like a lot of writers, I suspect, I was always, I was very taken with the idea that I had other writers talking about, I had to write the novel to discover what happened. I thought, oh, that sounds brilliant, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm not, don't, don't mean to take the piss too much here. Um, there are writers who, uh, you know, they come up with uh, just an initial idea, initial character, or a scene, or whatever, or a set of characters, um, and off they go, and it's this great adventure, and they don't know how it's going to end. Um, and, you know, Hopefully, some, at the end, some, there would be some sort of proper conclusion. Um, I think too many writers have been influenced by that ideal and have ended up uh, writing the, the kind of book that just stops rather than concludes. And then they're reduced to saying, yeah, I was resisting closure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the thing is, I have tried writing like that. Um, uh, the second novel I actually wrote, when I was 18, I think, uh, the very first one was called The Hungarian Lift Jet. <laughs> Pausing for gasps of astonishment. What a fabulous <laughs> title that was. Um, again, Liftjet was a spy story I wrote when I was 16, absolutely packed with sex and violence, neither of which I had any experience of whatsoever. <laughs> um, but I'd read lots of books that did. Um, and uh, 18, I wrote this thing called TTR, which sort of, but sort of didn't in a really like, cool way. I uh, stood for the, the Tashkent Rambler. Um, again, Rambler was somehow a really cool, groovy dude of a word at the time. Um, and it was, it was very much influenced by Catch-22, which I'd read about half a dozen times in about five years. And also by a, a great science fiction novel called Stand on Zanzibar by John Brunner. That was mostly just, um, uh, mostly... Uh, influenced, I guess, by Catch-22, more than the, the science fictional aspect, because it was set in a near future, but it wasn't really science fiction. Um, and there'd been a Sino-Soviet border war. They had not gone nuclear. Uh, the Americans weren't involved at first, then realised it'd be a good wheeze to test, battle test their, their, their latest weapons, which I hadn't had a chance to do for a while. <laughs> How naive was that? Um, <laughs> uh, so they come in on the side of the Chinese, and they take Mongolia off the Russians, uh, the Chinese don't want Mongolia, it's just empty space, basically. So the book takes place in the three weeks before uh, the Mongolian Dependence Day celebration, when it becomes the 51st state of the Union and gets renamed to Mongoliana. <laughs> so, obviously, uh, a kitchen sink uh, realist drama of a novel, as you can tell. Uh, the, some of the characters are called things like Doghart Jamahari, uh, Dahomey Brezhnev, both bits misspelled, um, Toss Macarb. That looks quite funny in the page. We'll just have to take my word for it. Um, and uh, it, I'd started it off, and I had like six sets of major characters. I thought, I'll just see where it takes me. That was a very rough idea. Just, you know, mostly into the desert, frankly, um, into the Gobi. And uh, I just let it, let it go. And I got to about a quarter of a million words, and I thought, it's getting a bit long. And absolutely no sign of it coming to any sort of conclusion <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> if anything, I was inventing new lots of characters. So it was gay abandons went along. Hey, hey. wait a minute, this could go badly wrong. So I came up with a plan to, to finish it. To, um, I actually planned it from the other, right, get all these separate strands and just gradually knit them together to a point. And that'll take 50,000 words. So I got to about 320,000 words. realised this hadn't worked. I just came up with another plan. And that didn't work out. And then another plan. Finally, sort of hogtied, wrestled the bastard to the ground and hogtied him. Whatever the hell you do, whatever metaphor might be involved, at about 410, 415,000 words. Now, that is an enormous book. Twice the length of that, easily. That's just under 200,000. Um, huge, huge, huge novel. I thought, I'm not doing this again. I can't do this. This is not. Obviously, I need to have the thing worked out properly and know where I'm going. Because this just writing as I go along and see what happens next, it, just, it, was, it was cancerous. There was no off switch. It was never actually going to come to a natural conclusion. So is, is the Tashkent Rambler in the, in the same drawer as your poem? Yeah, well, I suppose I wouldn't mind um, academics seeing it. I would never want it to be published, you know. Um, uh, I was still coming out of my, uh, my pun phase at the time as right. well. The, the, the central character, this guy, Dahomey Brezhnev, 
and featured in all these um, really sort of bad, puerile um, stories I've been writing at, at school. Uh, and I, so I did these uh, um, sort of collages at the same time. The collages are quite good, actually. They're not, they're not embarrassing. Stories are absolutely awful. They're genuine. They're, they're, they're so sort of, you know, sixth form, whatever you want to call them, so schoolboy. Um, and uh, my big obsession was getting puns in there and uh, I, I did about five of these and I realised I'd got, gradually worked more and more puns into each individual story so I thought and I'd come down from like 20, I'd, you know, obsessive, you know, whatever, I'd started working out how many puns there were, how many words you had, what the pun to word ratio was, right? And I'd come down from like 23.5 to, you know, 13.4 oh I thought, <laughs> I can get it under 10, you know. <laughs> so I spent you know, weeks in my bedroom doing it. <laughs> working on getting the pun to word ratio down, and I eventually got it down to 9.8. Because the story was almost, it was already incomprehensible, but it just <laughs> gibberish, you know. But guaranteed, every tenth word, if it was slightly better, was a pun. Um, so, and yeah, the home impression of even in uh, TTR, it only had about 300 puns, you know, which uh, it sounds like a lot. Actually, it is a lot, you know, in absolute terms, but relatively, spread throughout 410,000 words, it's bugger all, you know. So I was very much in remission at that point from my, my pun obsession. Yeah. So I've, I've never used them since. You know, I'm clean now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh, two or three more, more questions. There's another one uh, upstairs. Yes. Do you think that the culture is your greatest aspiration for technology? Uh, uh, I don't think we can do better. I think we've been lucky to end like it. Um, and I've kind of severely hedged my bets about whether you know, anything like us, whether humanity is capable of something like the culture. Um, the thing about a utopia is that it's kind of independent of your technology. You can produce the best, if you define utopia as the best possible society, um, obviously you can argue about the, word, the definition of the word best, but um, the, the, the fairest and most just society that you're capable of creating with the technological means at your disposal, then we have, you know, we fucked it every single time. We just made a complete, utter mess of it. Uh, this is the best we've got at the moment, you know. Uh, and it's not that great. Um, so, I mean, I've made it clear in the culture that the, they might have genetically modified themselves. If there is, say in us, there is a sequence of genes that code for, um, you know, sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all, all xenophobia, you know, fear and hatred of the other any other group of people. Uh, if there is such a thing, then we might have to knock it out. We might have to genetically modify our own species to become nice enough to be like the culture. Also, they have got to that point that it's a post-scarcity <laughs> society, so that um, at least that removes one excuse for being horrible to each other, because there's always enough land and enough resources to, to go around. Uh, plus, again, you do have the mines involved. They, they actually have a part in this sort of, um, sort of triumvirate, as it were. There's the mines, there's the, the drones, which are uh, the little sarcastic suitcases that float around, you know, um, being a bit camp often. And, um, and they're generally slightly more intelligent than humans. Uh, the mines are vastly more intelligent. And t together, the three of these sort of form a sort of stable sort of society. And I put it, you know, 9,000 years, what would be nine, 10,000 years in, in our future. And so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of hedge betting going on there, you know. I'm not sure whether we really are. We haven't proved to be so far. Um, and the other thing is intelligence. I keep forgetting to mention this. I'm, I, I, I'm a fairly intelligent person, right? I'm reasonably smart, you know. I've always assumed that if I was in a culture, I'd be slightly below average intelligence. Um, so I think maybe just the fact that they're just cleverer, so that makes them, you know, more intelligent, more imaginative. And I think if you're more imaginative, you tend to be more em empathic, you tend to have more empathy, because you can imagine being people not like yourself. I think if you've got the more creative intelligence you have, the easier it is for you to, you know, for me as a, a white heterosexual male, for example, to imagine being, you know, not being heterosexual, not being male, or, or not being white, and not being you know, well off, imagining being, you know, a poor black woman on the other side of the planet or whatever. You can empathize with, with people who aren't anything like you. Um, whereas right-wing people don't seem to be able to empathize with anyone who's not their family, or at least in the same golf club. You know? <laughs> and that is, a, that is a large part of the problem, because those people are sort of self-selectingly the people at the top of our society as a rule, because uh, they're you know, more arrogant and vicious and um, prepared to trample over other people to gain money and power, which are almost synonyms. Uh, um, so uh, I'd, I'd love to... It's, it's certainly my, the thing I'm most proud of in my work, I guess, because it's the one thing that's been there for the longest time, as it were, uh, as a, as a you know, semi-independent entity, the culture is the thing I'm most proud of. Whether we're, I don't think we are capable of it at the moment, in, in a sense. I'd love to think we could, 
be eventually. But uh, I think it boils down to we'll be lucky, you know. So. Well, I think that's a real sort of grounds for uh, claims for the importance of science fiction that it can be wiser than the world it speaks to. It, you know, it can. It can it's going to be a pity. Yeah, be better, absolutely. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's it's, it's, it has got that idealistic, almost didactic sort of prophesying a lot of the time. Again, a lot of time it's sort of warning. That's why you know, there's so many dystopias and yeah. and science fiction is that you know sort of finger waggy thing. You know, oh, you be careful now. This could happen to you. You know. Uh, yes. um, <laughs> but yeah, I think at the same time it, it can, at its best, it can also offer you know, like a form of hope. I mean, it is in a sense it's a kind of secular religion in a way. Uh, it doesn't. I don't think it involves faith. It simply involves the idea that there is a practical form of hope, that we have the, the capability of behaving better and we should always be trying to behave better and that we can do so in a sort of organised, sort of species-wide uh, framework and that uh, we, can make, we can make things better. I mean, we... And society matters and also, to a degree, technology does matter. Even when, you know, it's turned around and bitten us, as it has with global warming, but then that's just us being us. You can't really blame the technology. That's us just being profligate, as it were. Mm. Uh, but uh, we, we, don't have, we have no excuse for not getting it right, not, not, getting it, not doing it better. Mm. Uh, was there a, was a question there? Uh, a lovely dolphin, I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. As a small atheist, without reintroducing the concept of the soul, mm. do you really believe that that would have continuity itself? You're not just cutting yourself, killing off the human, and then reanimating it as a different person? Uh, well, arguably, yes, absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, why bother, in a sense, why bother to destroy the original? It's like the whole thing about Star Trek, about, you know, basically you're, you're, <laughs> you're vaporising Captain Kirk every time. And the poor guy in the red, oh my God, you've got a red jumper on, a red T-shirt. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that has been pointed out, that and that's what happens when you're vaporising them, which basically is killing, you know, and then reconstructing them, uh, reconstituting them in the planet surface or whatever. And all because they didn't have enough money in the budget to play for a model shuttle to going down. Anyway, um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think that is one of the I mean, stuff. That is ne I've never really tackled that absolutely you know, head-on in any of the novels. I mean, there's a bit where uh, Vatoy, this sort of um, universal soldier character guy in the book, um, he's sent as a fully functioning conscious entity into, to talk to the culture of minds. And at the end, they say, well, what do you want to do now? Should we, should we just make a home for your, this consciousness? Because you can't really go back, in a sense. Because, nah, just kill me. Um, and the implication is that the, the guy himself must be so fucked up, and it turns out he really is, <laughs> um, uh, that he doesn't care. But that, that, that obviously means something, because he is a fully functioning you know, um, being, conscious being. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I'm just assuming that the, uh, the technology will be there, how people choose to interpret it. I imagine there'll be a lot of people in the culture who would never go near um, the, the whole uh, soul uh, transcription thing, that the, uh, no matter how clear it becomes, it's nothing to do with religion, that's nothing to do with anything supernatural at all. That that is wouldn't want any part of the uh, the, the, the mind state um, transcribing stuff because just for that reason, I feel that in the end it's not really them. What continuity would it be? I mean, you'd, you'd wake up in this other body or this, in this computer substrate or uh, whatever, and you'd have all the same memories. And you'd feel the same, but um, obviously start to diverge. Yeah, it was a fascinating thing. I'm not, I'm, in the end, I just said not to come to a definite conclusion. I thought I'd let everyone in the culture do as I well please, you know. But uh, oh, it's fascinating stuff. You know, it, it fascinates me. I think it's amazing. It's one of these things. It's so fascinating. You think um, it's too good to be true. It might be, right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about having to read, you know, I, I've got the idea of the, um, the neural lace that it somehow just simply goes through your entire head without taking up any extra space. Hmm. Um, somehow it's connected to every single neuron and every single synapse and so on and is able to do this absolutely perfect, um, you know, sort of copying transcription of your, uh, your soul, you know, your, your uh, non-spiritual, as it were, soul. Um, and that might be too big a... You know, an assumption, we just don't know. But it's just cells, you know, especially as the culture's got access to four dimensions as well, so they can just look, you know, from the outside, as it were. Um, oh, so it's very exciting. I really get <laughs> oh, I love this stuff. Yeah. We did have one more question, too, at the next table, too, if that's... I wonder, in your writing, how much reflection you give on what you give to the voice of the narrator in the novels. Mm. Sometimes the narrator seems to be a kind of quite a distant observer Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can tell. Damn. Do you reflect much on that? Or do you just 
as little as bloody possible. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously there is, there is an omniscient narrator in all the, the cultural novels, and it is, yeah, it's me, obviously, you know, it's my idea, I came up with it, it's my ball, and I'm going home with it, damn it. Um, I mean, uh, I think you, one kind of just has to accept that, I, I suppose, you know, I mean, it would be possible you could, you know, uh, you could go into a very sort of contrived way of, oh, I don't know, making them all epistolary novels. Did I even pronounce that right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you could make it so it, it's, uh, it pleases people who believe that the author is dead or all that sort of nonsense, you know. Um, and it could be done, but I just have no interest in it. I'm quite happy with the, the omniscient narrator and uh, having lots of you know, characters running around and getting inside their own heads. I think that's what... You know, it's a, at least it's a perfectly valid way of telling a story. It's not doesn't have to be the only one, of course not. But um, I'm quite happy doing that. And yeah, I think I mean there is always that danger. I think that when you're writing, you you come out of the novel mood too much. I get that a lot in the mainstream novels. There's bits where you know, for years, even before they got published, there's bits, especially when they got to a rant. You know, my friends go, that's just you, isn't it, Banksy? They go, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it still happens, even though I've got good editors and all the rest of it. Um, and yeah, it does. I, I come out the novel some of the time. People say, oh, I can hear you talking when I'm reading your books. You know, it's very annoying, I'd imagine. You know? um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, so it's not... And the, the answer is I don't give much thought to it, to be honest. I think about it and go, ah, oh, what the hell, who cares? You know? So I'm very sort of lackadaisical that way, very slapdash. You know, if, it, if it works, I'm happy with it. I'm not really thinking, overthinking it. You know? Perish <laughs> that thought, look. <laughs> well, I think... Um, I can say that we can all agree that we think it does work. Um, so far, so good, you know, <laughs> opinions differ. <laughs> um, I think perhaps in, in order to, uh, to, to, give, to give you a chance to, um, to, 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 to sign, perhaps we might um, just draw it to a, um, uh, this, this part of the proceedings to a, to a close. But um, thank you for, for answering all of our, of our, no, our not questions at all. My, with, my uh, pleasure. with, with such time. generosity. Yeah. We, um, uh, we look forward to, to Stonemouth and we look forward to the next um, uh, culture novel. And... Um, on behalf of all of us, um, thank you very much, Ian Banks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.